Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Well, I am really excited to welcome Tyler McCall, who is a fellow redhead, gorgeous redhead, who is the editor-in-chief of Fashionista, one of my favorite sites for many, many, many decades at this point. Or how many decades has it been? It's been around how long, Fashionista? Since 2007. Yeah, it's a long time. I am so excited to see you. I am so excited to welcome you to Leave Your Mark. And I know there are so many people who are going to listen to this episode and be so enamored with your story. Because for starters, besides being an amazing journalist for many, many years in the industry, you literally started as an intern at Fashionista. And now... Fast forward, you were editor-in-chief of Fashionista, and I've kind of seen you, not as an intern, but I've seen you along the way in yesteryears, and I know you've had stints outside for a minute, but you've always come back to the mothership, and now it's like your baby. So I'm so excited to talk about this because I think one of the things, or one of the principles that I really believe in, as you know, is this idea of just really having loyalty and passion for a brand that you believe in, right? And sticking with it and then growing with it. And that's basically what you've done. And, you know, you started as an intern, then you were editorial assistant, then you were senior associate editor, and then you were briefly digital fashion editor at Teen Vogue, and then social media manager of Vogue, and then returning to Fashionista for this big job. And I'm sure many people who are listening also know Tyler as a Gossip Girl expert, which she is. Tyler, you have made being a fan of Gossip Girl an actual side hustle, an actual job. (laughs) I mean, you have, right? Waldorf Wednesdays, Serena Saturdays, your newsletter. And I think it's such a great example, besides the fact that, like, I literally live for all these posts because it's such a... In a way, nostalgic view of it. I know it's back, but like nothing beats the original, right? And you have made this like your expertise just because you love it. So we're going to get into all of that. But first of all, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm going to hire you to write my bio. (laughs) (laughs) I would love to write your bio, although I suspect you are a better writer than I am. Let's start with, I mean, Fashionista is so passionate about educating, aspiring people who want to work in fashion, right? And there's so many educational aspects of Fashionista. So let's start off with, first of all, your background, 
What did you dream of doing when you were growing up? Where are you from? Give us all those goods. Yeah. So I am from a small town in Florida called Ocala. Most people have not heard of it. Uh, If they have, it's because they drove through on their way to Disney, which I get a lot. And I wanted to be a teacher originally. I wanted to be a history teacher. Wow. I know. I went to the University of Florida and I studied history in undergrad with a minor in French, thinking that I was going to be a high school teacher. And I was a substitute teacher while I was in college because in Florida, you can be a substitute teacher if you have an AA or the equivalent. So I did that as my part-time college job. Um, Figured out that I, A, did not love teaching (laughs) and B, (laughs) so I graduated in 2008 right when the recession hit. So there was nobody hiring. It was a total hiring freeze across the state. I ended up working retail for a year. I'd worked a little bit of retail in college and followed some managers that I'd worked with around and decided, okay, well, I still really love history. I love studying. I'm going to get my PhD. <laughs> and oh, wow. I did not know this. Yeah. So I applied for a program that Columbia University offers. It's a master's program and it's in French cultural studies. I actually think they've changed the program, but at the time the degree was in French cultural studies. So I moved to Paris for a year and discovered that I hated grad school. <laughs> so that signing <laughs> up for academia was not going to work for me. Ironically, one of the reasons is because, I mean, this was when Gossip Girl was on the air and I was finding all these ways to stream it and pair it like through my computer illegally. And I'd be hanging out with my classmates talking about Foucault. And I'd be like, doesn't anybody want to talk about Gossip Girl for like five <laughs> minutes, please? <laughs> like, this is all great, but... Fortunately, um, so I wrote my master's thesis on French fashion and globalization. And as a part of that, my student advisor was friends with the beauty editor at Women's Wear Dailies. And um, she recommended that I do an internship there because she thought it would be helpful for my thesis. Oh, And by this point, I had an interest in fashion. I would not say that I grew up with an interest in capital F fashion. I would pick up magazines on newsstands if I was at the drugstore or Target or whatever. And I liked dressing. I liked style. I kind of had that going, but it wasn't something that I, I couldn't tell you who, like the difference between Prada and Miu Miu, for example. But in college that sort of developed, I started reading Fashionista, I remember, and I had all these bloggers that I followed and I was really in tune with the sort of inside baseball stuff by then which is what interests me. But I sort of assumed that fashion writing was a job for like rich people's kids, which isn't totally wrong. (laughs) It's totally not wrong. It's totally not wrong. I was interning at WWD in Paris and I was like, I love this and they're not paying me. Shocker. (laughs) I know. I was like, I'm so happy to do this for free. Like I'm happier doing this than I was anything else. And you would think That would be when I moved to New York. But instead, I moved to Alabama because my ex-boyfriend was in law school there. (laughs) Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So I lived in Alabama for two years. Uh, I sold granite countertops while I was there. And then I moved to New York. So he was getting ready to graduate from law school. I knew that I really wanted to work in fashion. I knew that I wanted to be in New York. I sat down one day with a stack of magazines that I loved reading And went through the mastheads and cold emailed probably like 50 or 60 people in different departments just saying, hey, I have this one internship. 
I'm not a student. (laughs) Can I do something? Can I work for you? I individualized every single one of those emails. I knew who these people, I mean, this was like the golden era of street style. So it was like the Teen Vogue team who I knew from Tommy Ton's photos. And I was a huge fan of Teen Vogue and Elle and Vogue. And I got responses from people, but they all wanted me to intern again, even though I wasn't in school. And of course, this was before internships were basically like abolished because they had those lawsuits. Which ruined it for everyone, side note. Yeah, well, so their solution for me was uh, you could re-enroll in school. And I was like, Ah, I can't do that. Stop it. Some HR department said, in the past when we've had this come up, we've had girls re-enroll in school in an independent studies program so that they can technically receive credit for the work. And I was like, so not only are you not going to pay me. (laughs) You're going to pay for it. I have to pay (laughs) for school. Um, but fortunately, somebody who did respond was Leah Chernikoff, who then was the editorial director of Fashionista. Now she's the executive editor at Harper's Bazaar. But she said that she recognized me from the comment section of Fashionista because this was when people still commented on websites. Oh, that's super interesting. I commented on probably like every single story they wrote. I mean, I had, you know, made friends with people in the comment section. Some of them I'm still in touch with today. And I knew Fashionista's publishing schedule, like I knew when to go back because a new story would be up. And, you know, I was still living in Alabama technically because I was trying to get something lined up before I moved to New York. And Leah said, why don't you try interning for us remotely? We pay interns. We can try this because there are certain things that you can do. You can help produce posts and like do our daily news roundups and things like that. And so I did that. And after a couple of months of doing that, she said, if you ever want to come to New York, and do it in New York, you should. So I sold pretty much everything that wasn't nailed down. I sold my car, I sold like all my furniture. You know, I was getting nickel and dimed on uh, Craigslist over like a $10 desk or whatever. Anyway, I moved to New York and started interning. So she really gave you your start. I love that. Yeah, because of the comment section. Okay, so maybe people are not leaving those comments on websites as much today, but people are certainly leaving comments on Instagram. So it just goes yeah. to show you can become recognizable if you're consistent and regular and loyal. Exactly. Someone the other day, and I'm sure we'll get to this, was we were talking about the Gossip Girl stuff. And they were like, how do you just keep manifesting these things in your life? And I was like, uh, I'm annoying about them on the internet for years until somebody's like, fine. <laughs> You can do it. <laughs> but also, I guess that raises a really good point. And Gossip Girl is different because that's an entity. But like, when does leaving too many comments cross the line into stalker? <laughs> yeah. So this was a little different, I guess, because it's not like I was leaving them on Leia's Instagram page. Right. This was 2011, 2012. Like, websites had very robust very active comment sections. So it was people having conversations with each other about, I don't know, like Terry Richardson news. You know what I mean? It was like debating the latest Jill Sander runway. It was like all this kind of stuff where it would spark these conversations. I think about that a lot now because it's a hard line to follow between like, oh, you have something interesting to say and, oh, I can't tweet without you being in my mentions. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I can't post something without getting a DM from you, and maybe that's too much. Right. Well, that's what I'm kind of getting at. But I I guess it was the brand versus Leia personally. So Yeah. 
you were able to express just your dedication to the site, essentially. Yeah. Well, comments are not so much a thing in websites anymore. I don't even think we have one. I think especially like Twitter is the place people are having those conversations. I mean, comments are still a thing on like YouTube. I'm sure um, I'm learning on TikTok. <laughs> it's a yeah, thing. I would say comments on YouTube. I mean, this is just from a brand perspective, like they're really, really random. It's not yeah. like conversations that you would actually have. It's more stuff that you're like, I'm going to just delete that. Like, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's not, not going to stay there. Yeah. Okay. So you start as this intern and you just have a natural, you just slide right in there. Like if fashionista has a human form, it's you. Uh, yeah. And it has bows. <laughs> yeah. How did you sort of immerse yourself in the brand to become essentially indispensable? I mean, it took a lot of work. I think studying history and having that background taught me how to research and taught me to write, but it did not teach me to do that for the internet, right? Which is a totally different beast. And at the time, fashionistas still aggregated a lot, which was a really common, you know, taking I'm going to read this cover story or this profile of whoever and then pull out this interesting tidbit and write like, a 500 word blog post about it. That was fast. That was like, you need to read it, write it, be done with it within an hour because we need to get it up to be timely. And that was a lot of like, you know, the expression that like, you can only have something done fast, cheaply or well done. Like that's how it felt with my writing. It was like, you're either going to get it fast and correct. (laughs) And it's going to be, you know, bad or like, well-written and correct, but it's not going to be fast. It was like figuring out how to do all of that at once. But most of it was just, I wanted it so bad that I was just willing to do whatever. And I was so excited by everything. I mean, I think part of it that was really helpful was technically because Fashionista paid interns, it was a part-time wage. So you couldn't work more than 29 hours a week because then you obviously legally are full-time. And I worked way more than that. I just didn't file hours for that because I I wanted to be helpful and I was so excited by what was going on. I mean, especially once I was in New York and it was fashion week, I wasn't really going to any of the shows, but it was so exciting to be in an office with people who were coming and going and seeing all this stuff. Um, This is when Fashion's Night Out was still happening. No, I hated Fashion's Night Out. I had one and hated it. But like, you know, because I hadn't had that experience, I was like, this is so exciting. I wanted to like see all the shows. So at the time, one of my roles as an intern and then an editorial assistant was downloading the images from fashion shows. And then at the time we had to resize them for the site, uploading them into a post and having all the metadata ready so that the editor who was at the shows could come back and file the review and have it completely ready. And I just, I logged on and did that. I did that so late. I would work weekends. I worked on European hours when like people were traveling because I was so excited by it. So I think that was kind of what did it. I think you're right. And I think, again, just having that pinch me moment of like, I'm actually here. I'm in this office. I'm doing it. And then it becomes less of like, oh, this is my job and more just like this is my passion because you're so happy and grateful that you're there. What was the daily demand as far as like your output, as far as how many stories you had to like produce a day? I was not at the beginning the writer as much as I was a producer. So helping transcribe things was a big thing for me. 
at the time we were still doing a daily street style post. So getting the images from our street style photographer and publishing that. Um, and then it was like picking up news posts. Usually that happened more in the afternoon so that other editors could focus on their stories that they had done interviews or features or anything like that. So, you know, DKNY has a line of sweatshirts coming out. Like, here's the press release on that. Let's, you know, get that written up. <laughs> Who would send you such a thing? No idea. Uh, so from the perspective of like stress levels, mm-hmm. this is like your first job in this industry. How did you sort of take on the speed and the output and manage the stress of like having to know what was going on and always making sure that you knew what was breaking and, Mm -hmm. you know, having your finger on the pulse? Yeah. I have several habits that I still have today, which are, are not even that necessary, but I always kept Twitter open in a window that I could see it, the feed as it was refreshing itself, because at that time, a lot of news broke on Twitter and sometimes still does, obviously. The thing that was actually hardest for me as an adjustment, which is going to sound kind of funny, but I was 25 when I started interning. And at the time I interned with this girl, Morgan, who I'm still friends with, um, who's really great. And she was kind of a whiz kid because she was 16. So, wow. Yeah. She moved to New York. I think she was doing an NYU program or something. I can't remember now why she was there for the summer. And she was just super sharp. And, you know, I was with women who were my peer group and I had been in roles when I worked in retail, I had worked in management roles. And so I had a hard time not being bossy is maybe not the right word for it, but like volunteering my opinion, (laughs) like chiming in on conversations. And finally, I had to be like, this is not a conversation for interns. This is an editorial conversation. And so still I have a habit of I work with one headphone in and have music on so that I don't feel tempted to pay attention to other people's conversations because <laughs> I had to break myself of that habit of honestly, it was I was being kind of a know-it-all. Interesting. And well, now you're the editor-in-chief, so now you can be a know-it-all if you want. It's true. <laughs> you don't have to wear those headphones anymore. <laughs> it's true. How did that make you feel when she told you that? It was embarrassing. I was like, oh my gosh, it was good. And I was grateful for it because you know, I was coming into this environment where, you know, we work in an open plan office. And so conversations were happening. And it was hard for me to understand the conversations were happening in a room that I was in that didn't involve me. Yeah, totally. Which sounds like a very naive, I think, thing to say, but I had never had a work environment like that before. And that was really helpful because it was like, I need to learn when I can tune things out or when I have something helpful to say. Like, that was the other thing is if I, I think if I had been adding things that were of value to conversations, that might have been one thing. But again, I think I was being a little bit of like a, a know-it-all about stuff. I can't remember now what I said that prompted that conversation. But You know, it's funny because I can relate to this a lot. And I'm sure that I also did that in my sort of early days. And I'm thinking that like no one really shut me down in a way that was like good positive feedback. It probably would have been helpful for me to hear that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, to be clear, it was like she pulled me aside. It was an appropriate conversation to have. It was also like, this is also an opportunity for you to learn. And like listening is a good way to learn things and not feel like you need to interject. Like it was very helpful. But that was the thing that I had the hardest time with because I was like, well, I'm 25 and I'm an adult and I know everything. So <laughs> I don't think you thought you knew everything, but I think, okay, so this goes back to like, 
confidence, right? So you were confident in your opinions mm-hmm. and your knowledge. And I guess turning it around now, since you're the boss, how do you then lead your team or your interns? Like if you saw that now, would you also take the person aside and just say, listen, this is like an A and B conversation, see your way out in a nicer way? Yeah. I mean, I feel like I haven't had as much, and that's why some of it I think was like an age thing. Cause like, I can't remember ever having an intern that was that aggressive because I was aggressive about making their opinions known, but I do think it was appropriate. I mean, it was like a kind and like, you know, you're helping me. Yeah. Listen, I know, Leia, I know I can picture exactly how she said it, but I also think like, you don't want to squash talent either. Right. Right. Because I'm sure you knew a lot what you were saying. She was good about, you know, if we were having pitch meetings, like interns were invited to pitch. There would be times where she would turn and say, oh, what do you think? So it was just about learning to discern when that input is welcome. Yeah. I think it's great advice for everyone listening because it applies not just to interns, right? It doesn't apply just to assistants. I think sometimes, you know, some people want to hear themselves be heard in certain situations. And sometimes you do have to kind of study the room first and make sure that it's the right moment. It was good to learn when I have thoughts that are valuable and when I have thoughts that I want to share just to seem like I know something fun or interesting. Yeah, for sure. Because that was true in like meetings later on. I mean, even in regular meetings where I was an active participant of like, I don't need to take up airtime. Good point. Tell us about your actual job today. Like, what is your job? Yeah. So I am now editor-in-chief, which means that I am now responsible for leadership (laughs) And I have a team. We're a small team. There's five of us full-time editorially, um, and we have an audience manager as well. Four of us in New York. One of our editors is in LA. And so my job is, you know, making sure that things go up on the site, uh, approving stories and pitch meetings. I top edit almost everything just to make sure it's obviously A, you know, correct and B, good for the site. And, uh, you know, in more normal times, (laughs) running around and doing meetings, you know, whether it's like going to a press preview or going out with a PR for a lunch or a drink catch up or kind of figuring out what's going on and staying on top of what's going on in the industry so that, you know, we have a good idea of what kind of coverage we should be offering. That's sort of starting to come back, I guess. But who knows? <laughs> Fingers crossed. So Fashionista has a very specific brand voice, but what yes. have you added to the mix over the years to make it more your oh. point of view and Tyler? And I know you've done certain things, but I'll let you share. Uh, well, I'm glad that you think that I've done certain things because I'm trying to think now. I mean, I think for me personally, and something that has been very important to me is talking a lot about inclusivity and diversity for me specifically regarding like body and size inclusivity. I've been kind of trying to stay on top of that almost since I started. Just because like, especially back in like 2012, that conversation wasn't really happening in the same way. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. So that's been really important to me. You know, the tone of the site has always kind of like the way that we would explain it is Like you're trying to explain the latest news story to your friend over brunch, right? It's relatable, but it's taken seriously. It's not always as 
maybe like buttoned up as other websites who are focused on the news stuff. I feel really fortunate that we have an audience that's interested in the inside baseball stuff because not a lot of audiences are anymore. So it's just about keeping it relatable, sometimes not taking it seriously at all. But yeah, I, I'd like to think that that's what I brought. What do you think I brought to it? I was going to say the diversity and inclusivity. Okay. I mean, that to me was like, if this was a quiz, you just got 100. So that was good. You can- okay, great. <laughs> I am an overachiever. So that's good to hear. Yes. So tell us from your perspective, this is a funny question coming from me, but like PR do's and don'ts. Uh-huh. <laughs> My biggest don't lately is, and I don't know when this started happening, but the amount of emails that I get from people telling me that their client would love my support. Um, and I don't understand when that became the phrasing, but it's like, I'm sure that they would, but they're not paying me for my support. Like what I don't, that's a weird turn of phrase to me is like, they would love your support because you're on their payroll. Like, <laughs> Do you think that happened with like the pandemic or prior to that? No, it was prior. It's been like the last few years where it's been like, can you cover this? My client would love fashionista support or whatever. And it just feels like, um, I don't know, something about it makes it feel like transactional. Like, I don't know why I dislike this phrasing so much, but I really hate it. Because I think it's more like, are you even interested in what they're even doing? Like from an editorial standpoint, like, do you even care? Let's start there. Yeah, right. Or... It's like also there's the feeling like an undercurrent of like obligation. I don't know. Yeah. It's well, there's weird. a little pity party. Yeah. There's a little pity party of just like, if you don't do this, then like someone's going to die slightly feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I understand that. What do you think makes a great pitch? Knowing what Fashionista does. Good point. Um, Thank you. Which Seems like 101 stuff to me, but and maybe you wouldn't, but you'd be surprised at the amount of conversations that I have to have with people when I pass on a story that ask why and then are like, well, I don't understand what do you do? And I'm like, I have a whole website of things that I do. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? (laughs) So funny. I've literally had PR be like, well, what kind of stories does fashion needs to do? And I'm like, I, you can look them up. You can read that. I don't even have a paywall. Like, I don't know what's happening here. Oh, my God. Lazy PR people. My favorite. My absolute favorite. Yeah. It's almost like I don't know how to tell you to target your client to me. And also, it's really straightforward. I don't feel like we're, like, that mysterious also. (laughs) I don't know. Good tips. So let's turn the tables now a little bit to Gossip Girl. And your self-appointed expertise, which you are. And I know you think you're like amateur, but you're actually an expert. So obviously we all watch the show. We all love the show. We live tweeted the show. Everyone was involved. But then you take it to this total other level. And I will point out, consistently held on to that thread once it was gone. And I think that was the biggest differentiator where you just like stayed true to your passion for it, and you kept going even though it was no more. What made you do that? Honestly, so the thing that started doing like more content online around it is that the 10th anniversary of the show came in 2017. And I love this show. I never saw I rewatch it probably like once a year. (laughs) I could probably do a one-woman show of the pilot episode at this point. I've seen it so many times. Can you do that, actually? Because I think that would be amazing. I would have to, like, work on some of the parts, but it's truly, like... You know the script. 
I am annoying. Like a lot of people are like, I want to watch Gossip Girl with you. And I'm like, you don't actually, because I am that person who will start to say the line like a half beat before it happens because I think it's funny or something. It's a nightmare. I know. But so in 2017, when the 10 year debut was happening, I interviewed Eric Damon, who's the costume designer for the show, which was a dream. I truly was like, I could sit on the phone with you for five hours and I would never be able to publish all of it, but that's fine. And as part of that, I did a Twitter thread of my favorite Blair Waldorf outfits because Blair was my favorite character. And it did really, really well. People were like, oh my God, I forgot about this or I love this too or whatever. And it was so much fun. It was just fun. I was like, I love talking about this. And I, it occurred to me that I could start doing something on my Instagram. I was like, well, Instagram has the carousel feature. I can post 10 images and I can go much more in depth. And so I started doing something. I started calling it Waldorf Wednesdays, where I would post every, not even every Wednesday at that point, honestly, I, I did it really sporadically, where I would pick my favorite Blair Waldorf outfits and break them down if I knew the credits. Because like a lot of times I remembered, oh, okay, that's a Mark by Mark Jacobs dress, or that was a Valentino bag or whatever. And at first I was like, people are going to be so annoyed by this who follow me because it's just this random gossip girl content. But it kind of grew into this own thing where like now I have people, I'll tell you that now I'm at a point where there was a couple weeks back in the spring that I just didn't post one. And I should say that I also started doing Serena Saturday during the pandemic because I was bored. I was like, all right, well, we'll start doing Serena too. Well, she deserves a day. And she does. But, and people would ask me for it, but I would literally like, I would get requests in the comments and I I would be like, this is not my job. (laughs) This actually takes a long time. And, um, so I didn't post the, either of those for like a couple weeks back in the spring. And someone DM'd me asking me if I was okay. Like if I was sick oh, because I God. hadn't posted them. And I was like, no, it's just, this is just not my full-time job. And now those posts get more likes. And I mean by like the thousands than photos that I post of myself, which is only slightly demoralizing. <laughs> well, I think because when you strike a chord, right? There's a real fan base here when you strike a chord. And I also think that you go into such fashion detail. And it's also a look into, like, even when you think of, like, Sex in the City back in the day, like, Pat Field did so many interviews on the fashion. It's not in-depth, like, the breaking down of the outfit. So if you're, like, a hardcore yeah. fashion fan and then you're a hardcore Gossip Girl fan, you're bringing those two things together in the form of this editorial thing that is now a newsletter also. So now you have a whole other job that you made for yourself. I did joke that, yeah, I essentially created like a part-time gig for myself. I put the newsletter on hold for a little bit, actually, because I was like, I have a real job and I have to like slow down. Yeah, but also these things take a lot of time. Yeah, I would say, so the newsletter was taking me at least three hours every week. So I would watch the episode and then, you know, take notes while I was watching. So it actually took a little bit longer um, to watch the episode and then write the newsletter and go through and make sure I got everything. So that was taking at least three hours. And then the Waldorf Wednesdays and Serena Saturday posts, like each of those takes me probably at least an hour to put together in between like photo research. And like, I like to be thorough. And so it's a lot of Googling around for like, okay, I know Serena, Serena is actually very easy because there is already websites that document every single thing. But for some reason, no one ever did that for Blair, which I think is stupid. (laughs) an oversight. And I think Blair's fashion was always even better. So I did too. And so it's literally me Googling like Blair Waldorf 
brown Mark by Mark Jacobs dress and like clicking around the internet to like this Pinterest. Okay, this pin on Pinterest says it's the Mark by Mark Jacobs dress and like a Ferragamo shoe. What's the bag? So then it's going back to Google. Blair Waldorf. I mean, it oh takes my God. forever. Oh my God. I like wish people understood. And the photo research, especially lately, I don't know what kick I've been on lately that I pick these outfits that have literally, they're on screen for 30 seconds. And I'm like, but that's a nice look. And so it's finding, you know, if there's stills, which is nice, but like there is no centralized website for Gossip Girl stills because the show's not on anymore. So it's Googling around for that. Set photos. That's also a big one where it's like, okay, so I know they were filming this on like July 7th, 2010. I'm going to Google Leighton Meester Paris, July 7th, 2010. I mean, it's truly like, Oh my God, you're going down the rabbit hole. It really is. (laughs) But from a fashion perspective, I mean, this show had like a cultural impact on fashion for certain. Yeah, absolutely. If you think about what Eric did, I mean, when that show started airing, he made like colored tights a huge trend at the time. That really wasn't happening. He made headbands such a thing that even when headbands started coming back a few years ago, everyone called it like the Blair Waldorf approved accessory, right? Like that's what every headline was. And then in turn, you had designers doing Gossip Girl inspired collections. Anna Sui did that whole Target collaboration themed Gossip Girl. Yeah. Do you remember I did um, a DKNY hosiery collab with Eric? Yes, I do remember. That was fun. So now there's a new kid in town. Yes. The reboot. How are you feeling? I really like it. And you had some participation. I did, sort of, very vaguely. So I helped Eric when he was starting pre-production work, was trying to get in touch with Christopher John Rogers for the big fashion show moment that's in the first episode of the reboot or continuation or whatever. I think they're calling it a continuation. Well, I feel like there's more opportunities for like these Tyler Gossip Girl moments. I'm hoping so. So I got an agent this summer um, and I'm working on a book proposal to write nice. a book about Gossip Girl. So oh. fingers crossed about that. Okay. So we're putting that – well, now it's on the podcast. So we're putting that out into the world. Yes. Because that would be amazing. I'm hoping. That was another reason I stopped the newsletter is like working on this proposal is also like another full-time Well, job. you need to save that content for the book for a certain – Yes. Fingers crossed. What are some myths about working in fashion that you want to debunk today on this episode of Leave Your Mark? Oh, that it's for rich people's children. (laughs) Probably (laughs) a good one. Look, I think that that's definitely still true for certain places. But like, by and large, I've met so many like really nice, really hardworking people. Um, And that's, I think, always the thing that I try to tell people who don't work in fashion is like, yes, there are still the Devil Wears Prada people who, I don't know, like throw salads at interns or whatever. But I feel like we're at a point where the people who I know who are succeeding and getting ahead are just really kind people. And they're getting ahead because they're kind and because people really like them and like being around them and they work really hard. So like, that's always been my biggest thing. I mean, do you think, like, the bad behavior even has a chance anymore? I mean, do you think that people would still get away with throwing salads? No. Now it would be 
now it's like the more insidious. Like, I think that there are people who are still mean and catty because it feels like a status thing to them. Like, it feels like they're supposed to be or like that's part of the gig is being mean about things or, you know, snarky about stuff behind people's backs. But like those people, I think, are few and far between now. I would hope so. Me too. I really would. How are you feeling about like the return to like in-person fashion week and everything happening? It's so interesting. Part of it is, so I've learned through this experience, I used to think I was an extrovert. And now I'm learning that I was just an introvert with very good social skills. (laughs) Because (laughs) having to go out, I mean, I had a day a few months ago that like in my, I keep referring to as like my past life and like pre-COVID times, I wouldn't have batted an eye at because it was like, I had a breakfast with a PR, I had a press preview at someone's office. I was having lunch with like another editor, I think. And then I was supposed to have drinks with a friend. And I finished the lunch. I texted my friend and I said, I have to go sit in a dark room by myself for an hour because I don't have this like muscle anymore, you know, because it being social for work stuff, you have to be on, obviously. It's yeah, professional. It's draining. And it's draining. And I just hadn't done it in so long that I was like, I have to sit in a quiet, dark room and stare at a corner because I've overdone it. So it's interesting. I mean, you know, obviously it's hard to know with like the Delta variant and everything kind of what will happen, but it seems like September is going to be really exciting. I've missed in-person fashion shows just because it's very hard to get a feel for a collection with digital it's not impossible obviously but it's hard when you don't have like the movement and like the context when someone's just like here's a lookbook it's like okay these are clothes (laughs) so but let me ask you a question comparing what we all know as a fashion show to an in-showroom like salon appointment or something that's really, really intimate where you do Mm -hmm. get to see the clothes. I mean, do you think the fashion show format itself is still impactful? I think it can be. I do think that we're in an environment where the things that are most impactful, like if you're assuming that a brand is doing a fashion show to get that like long tail of content and press and buzz and everything, I do feel like now we're at a point where that's only really possible if you are either like a very high end big money brand with money to throw at it, or if you're like a really small up and coming brand and you're doing something really interesting. I think if you're like a middle brand, if you're like a contemporary brand, a fashion show doesn't really make sense or isn't really necessary. Um, the few things that I did love about the pandemic is a couple times we did Zoom meetings with designers mm-hmm. where they would walk you through the collections. And that was so helpful. Like a more intimate salon style presentation, I think is always going to be better, at least for me in terms of contextualizing the clothes, but that's not possible for everybody. So, I mean, it's an interesting time to be figuring all that out, but like all that was kind of shaking out before the pandemic anyway. I know it was shaking out and I thought the pandemic was going to have a bigger impact on like changing things. I did too. But then it didn't. And then it didn't. <laughs> I know. And the, and I guess it's like typical fashion. Like everyone's just in their ways. They just, you know. That's what I've been telling people is last spring. I mean, as scary as it was, as depressing as it was, I mean, all these brands and retailers closing and going out of business. And I thought, okay, well, 
this is the reset that everybody needed, right? right. Like, this is the yeah. opportunity for like, you can't do anything. Everything is disrupted. The entire sales chain just is disrupted, right? So this is a time that we can take a look at everything that we're doing. We could do it more sustainably. We could do it, the retail, like the wholesale market in a way that makes way more sense for everybody involved. And then no one did anything. So, but doesn't that make you a little sad? It does. Yeah. It was very frustrating because I thought if ever there was going to be a time for a reset, this was going to be it. Not only because it just naturally presented itself, which I mean, you know, knock on wood will probably never happen again, but also because things were just so bad. I mean, retailers were going out of business and leaving designers on the hook for like tens of thousands of dollars. Yeah. And like we, there were designers writing open letters and signing open letters about like, we need to realign the fashion calendar and do all this stuff to make it yeah. make more sense. And we just didn't. And I think part of that is because you have really big brands at the top who don't have to do that and who the system works for them. And so it's too bad, I guess, <laughs> you know. Well, I have Stephen Kolb after you tonight. Oh, do you? I have a double podcast so we can discuss it on the other <laughs> side and I can come back to you. Yeah. So... You are obviously like fashionista, but what else besides the Gossip Girl book? What are things on your bucket list that you would just love to experience? Uh, what the pandemic made me realize and being stuck at home made me realize is that I don't travel enough. Mm-hmm. I travel a lot for work, obviously, but like that doesn't count as much. And so I'm really hoping when this is all over and it's safe to do so that I can get out more and like take more real vacation. (laughs) That sounds divine. And get out. You know, obviously I have the Gossip Girl book. Uh, I wrote a novel that I'm trying to shop as well. Oh, you like wrote it like it's finished. Yeah. So we'll see. Oh my God. So I think like you definitely want a book. There needs to be a book. Oh yeah. I love it. I would love a book. I would love a couple of them. (laughs) And you need, like, a hair accessories line also, if that's not on your list. I mean, you need to have that. I know. What would you say, looking back, you know, starting from intern to editor-in-chief now, what would you say has been your sort of, like, guiding principle as you climb the ranks in your career? What is that expression? It's, like, be nice. The people that you see on the way up are the same people you'll see on the way down. And I've kind of seen that happen to people. And so for me, it's like, I don't really care about much else other than treating other people as well as I possibly can. Like, I don't think that I'm perfect. I'm like a human being, obviously. And also, you know, trying to keep in mind, I think it's easy when you work in fashion. I think other fields are like this, but when you work in fashion, that the job says something about who you are, you know, that you're cool because you work in fashion or something and not letting that stuff get into my head either. If that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Of thinking like, oh, I'm just inherently a very cool and interesting person because I work in fashion. <laughs> no, I think you're a creative person when you work in fashion. But I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the smart people are always striving to make sure their own name means something versus mm-hmm. their name with the affiliation of where they work. Exactly. Yeah. And like not getting attached to a title or a place of work because, you know, I mean, you mentioned this briefly, but I did work at Condé Nast for a very short period of time. And for a while, I mean, that was really the dream. And I had interviewed to be the digital fashion editor at Teen Vogue two other times before I got it under two other editorial teams, which should have been the sign. 
that maybe things were slightly amiss. But, you know, I worked at Condé, which if you work in publishing, everyone says like, that's the best place you could possibly work. And when I got the offer to come back to Fashionista, a handful of people were like, kind of bewildered that I could ever leave Condé. And I was like, but like, that's not the best job opportunity for me. And that's not what I want to do. You know, like, not that there's anything wrong with this job. It's just this other job is a better fit for me. I know the team. I love Fashionista. I know the reader. And so just not feeling attached to like, but if I don't work at Condé, that must mean like there's something wrong with me. Yeah. And I give that advice to people all the time. I think that's really smart. And I think it goes back to knowing yourself, like you said, but also going with your gut. And mm-hmm. your gut is not going to see you wrong. You know, last week, Darcy Miller was on the show and she had that crossroads moment where it was like, be Anna Wintour's assistant. Or take a chance on Martha Stewart, who was launching this new magazine startup company. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to be like, but it's Anna Wintour. Like, how could you not take that job? And people did say that to her. And she was like, but I kind of just want to do crafts. And like, I yeah. want to like, you know, make stuff. And she's never looked back. So I think it's kind of the same thing where you kind of, you know it in your heart. And you have to also, it goes back to like thinking through whose opinions you ask for. Right. And who you're listening to when you're asking for advice. Exactly. Not everyone has your best interest or knows what's best for you. Yeah. I mean, everyone has different priorities and what works for me professionally isn't going to work for somebody else professionally. And so kind of just trusting people who knew me best and not disregarding other people's opinions. Obviously, I took that seriously. I took that into consideration, but kind of understanding at the end of the day that I had to do something that felt right to me, even though it was like, it was also very intimidating because I hadn't had that job even for, I hadn't been at Condé even for a year. Um, and I thought, oh God, it's going to look really bad that I like bailed on this job after four months. And it's like, no one, I don't think that that's as relevant anymore in a lot of cases because of the way that the entire industry is. (laughs) I think that's very true. I I think it's very true. And I also think like when your dream job pops up, you're just not going to be like, oh wait, I need to stay here four more months. Right. Exactly. What would you say has been so far your biggest challenge Mm -hmm. in your career and how have you overcome it? I was in the editor-in-chief role for six months when COVID hit. And if you want to talk about a learning curve in managing, um, trying to not only maintain morale and like maintain a website in a global pandemic, but also keep people employed. Yeah. Because I mean, you know, everybody, and I mean, everybody had drastically impacted budgets and incomes and revenues. And I feel very fortunate, you know, I know not everyone can make this kind of decision, but figuring out that for me, at least and when it came to my team, what felt more important to me was figuring out a kind of global compromise instead of leaving somebody out in the rain by themselves, you know? And so having these really hard conversations with my CEO and trying to figure out how I could keep everyone employed. And I mean, the answer to that was like, we all took 30% salary cuts, which was mm-hmm. tough. I mean, that was yeah not easy, especially for younger people on my team, but it meant that everyone had a job and everyone had health insurance. And I'm really proud of that because that was a priority for me. It was a scary time. It was a scary time, especially considering and everyone has that same conversation like, oh, you know, we're going to go home for two weeks. It was like that two weeks. And then it was like, 
or maybe like a year and some change. And <laughs> maybe yeah. like, I mean, like, it's crazy. It's yeah. crazy. We left notes when we left the office. Because I was also in Milan when Milan shut down. Oh, God. Because that was like the last day of Fashion Week there. Yes, that's right. Um, And then I went to Paris with the same 500 fashion people who were in Milan. And Well, you're like a cohort, so it's good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I thought, oh, God, well, it's fine because we're out of – I mean, nobody knew how it was being spread. So we were like, oh, we're out of Milan, so it's fine. And not like, oh, we're all possibly incubating this disease. And, like, people were getting called back. That was another thing. This is a lesson that I learned is people were getting called back to their offices. Like, different companies had different policies, obviously. And it got to be, like, the middle of Paris. And I emailed my boss, like, should I come back? And in my head, I thought, well, Anna's still here. So if Anna's still here, I should just stay. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And in hindsight, I don't know that I would make that decision because I think Anna would have stayed if, like, aliens had landed and were going to invade Paris. Like, Anna would have stayed through anything. Um, so my lesson is maybe self-preservation over, like, what Anna Wintour does. <laughs> I think that's a great rule of thumb. That's yeah. amazing. I was like, that's not a good rule to follow anymore, I think. Oh, my God. You are so funny. How would you say you ultimately want to leave your mark? Oh, you know, on a personal level, like I said, it's important that I treat people well and treat people with kindness. And on a professional level, you know, I would like to think I really love fashion. I think it's a really great industry. I defend it to the death. I also think it does some really stupid, really kind of messed up things. (laughs) And I would like to think that I have a part in making it like a more inclusive, friendlier place, not just for people who work within it, but like, you know, obviously it's a huge, not to be like Miranda Priestley, but it's like a multi-billion dollar industry that impacts millions of people. And I just think it could be better for everybody. Well, I love that sentiment. And, you know, I always say, like, we're not going to walk around naked, so we need fashion. Yes, exactly. Well, you're definitely doing your part. And I think that you're adding, like, and you have been for some time, like, a true breath of fresh air to, wow, do you hear the thunder? Mm -hmm. Sorry. It's like ruining my moment. Um, I think you have, for many, many years, added a breath of fresh air and also like a very authentic point of view. And I think that that is also why people love reading your work, because they can feel that from you. So keep up the great work. Keep doing what you're doing. No, it's true. You know I'm a fan forever. And I can't wait for your Gossip Girl book because that is so happening. Oh, fingers crossed. Thank you for coming on the show. This was so fun. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up a copy of my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you're on Instagram, make sure to follow at Leave Your Mark Podcast to stay up with the latest episodes. And of course, say hi to me at ElisaLickDexo. If you're on Twitter, definitely reach out at Aliza Licht. I would love to hear from you. If you want to subscribe to my newsletter or attend a future virtual mentoring event, go to alizalick.com for more information. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.